In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week again for this week is The Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howes. I'll be sharing that with you next week the mask of masculinity enjoying it so far Uh, and i also wanted to make an announcement about some seminars i will be doing outside of los angeles uh, in atlanta so anyone in the atlanta area august 10th and august 12th i will be there so august 10th from 7 to 10 p.m i'll be doing a seminar on dating and relationships on sunday august 12th from 2 to 5 p.m a seminar on success and also on Sunday, August 12th, 6 to 9 p.m., self-esteem and self-love. And these are all in Atlanta. I'll be posting the details um, on my Instagram and uh, different social media, and you can actually purchase tickets online. So if you're in the Atlanta area, would be very happy to see you there August 10th and August 12th. I wanted to start off the show today talking about an article that was sent to me by a friend of mine, a very long-time childhood friend, Dr. Farbot Hakiri. It's uh, He sent me an article that's about screen time and children, but not in the way we usually think about it. Uh, lots of parents are always wondering and worrying, is it okay for my kids to have screens or how much screen time at what age, how much, what's the content? And these are very important topics and issues and there's a lot of research that can guide parents on that and to be aware of the effects it can have on their visual development verbal development uh, even if it can contribute to adhd and things of that sort so it's very important for parents to be aware of that but this article actually was looking at the other side of the equation not about kids on their screens but parents and how they can be affected by being on screens and being distracted by them. And I thought that's a very interesting point, one I've talked about before, but this article did a great job talking about this issue, getting into the effects that it can have, because we usually focus on the kids, what are they doing, what's healthy or not healthy for them, but we forget how important the parents are, both in just taking care of themselves overall, but especially when it comes to the relationship between the parent and the child, the parents play such a big role. And so what we're seeing is that parents are spending a lot of time with their kids, as in they are physically in the same space, maybe even next to each other, but that parents are a lot more emotionally disconnected and not attuned to their children because of their devices. So you're sitting with your kid playing, but half the time you're checking your phone, or you might be 
talking to them and then a text comes through and you get distracted and check the text and you totally lose sight and lose connection with your child. And this is what this article was looking at. Uh, and looking at the distracted aspect in a physical sense, something that is puzzle, uh, I should say a little bit distressing to hear is that there's been an increase in ER visits for children that could be linked to parents on their phones, even on their stroller or whether the kids are on the strollers, we're seeing an effect, which is pretty sad, but I guess not so surprising when we consider how distracting it is for us. If whether you're driving, walking, or even pushing the stroller, it can actually lead to you not being as aware of the surroundings and getting yourself or your kid into trouble, which is really sad. So that's the, a physical aspect or manifestation of this disconnection that is brought about by phones and smart uh, smartphones and devices. But we know that the emotional ones are really huge because especially at a very young age, we know that what is so critical for children, and this article talked about this, the article is in the Atlantic, by the way, if you want to check it out, um, is they need to have conversations with parents and they need to have their parents talk to them a lot. It doesn't have to be educational, so to speak, but has to be uh, verbal communication. And so the title of the uh, article is The Dangers of Distracted Parenting, and it's in the Atlantic now. But it's so important for parents to talk to their kids and to really engage in face-to-face -face conversation with eye contact. But when you're on your phone, and if you talk and then look at your phone, you're losing that. And so they, they've done research, or if you look at observations, you find that when parents are distracted by their phones, as they so often are now, they're more likely going to miss what their children is saying. And when I say that, I don't mean listening as in the version of hearing the words, but actually really listening to their child and what they want and what they're expressing. Because kids need you to see them more than just the words they say, but their behaviors, their actions, how they're feeling. And if you're distracted, you're obviously not going to be as good at that. So this is a wake-up call to parents to be aware that, of course, as much as you're concerned about your kids' screen time, how much they're using it, and how much it's distracting them or affecting their development, we want to make sure, as parents, we're very aware of how our phones are distracting us because lots of research is coming out showing that this is, unfortunately, a negative effect that is happening on parents and their kids and the development of their kids is being affected. So when you think of your children and you think their screen time is affecting their development, be aware of how much the relationship is important. And this is something um, that I've talked about a lot recently in the book by Dr. Claudia Gold, The Early Science or The, the Science of the, the Developmental Science of Early Childhood. I think that's the title. But in her book, the emphasis was on the relationship. So, so often parents are focused on, okay, what's the right age to do this? And how do I sleep train? And how do I feed or not feed pacifiers, potty training? And all these things are very, very important to uh, think about and plan and learn about and make sure you're doing them in the best way that you can. But what's even more important than these things is the relationship between you and your child. That's actually how your child is growing the most in an emotional sense, in a cognitive sense, is the ways that you interact with them. So this is why I always talk about parents wanting to educate their kids. So I think, okay, I'm going to sit in them in front of a screen and show them baby Einstein videos or 
whatever else videos or games there might be to teach them things, what your baby and young child needs more than anything is to interact with you. Even the use of mother ease, like the way moms can talk or anyone really talks to kids where we use high-pitched voices and simple grammar and make things sound a certain way, although uh, as the article points out, it can be annoying to adults listening to it. We see that kids really like it and they respond well to that. So they need you to look at them and talk to them. That's going to be much more important than any video that's going to teach them the alphabet uh, before they're one year old. That's not really needed. What they need is to interact with you face to face. And of course, we're talking about parents and their kids and how important it is for parents to recognize that their use of devices can take them away from their children. But this is true in all of our relationships. We see this a lot with romantic couples as well, where people will say they don't feel as connected as they'd like to feel, but they also think, well, we spend so much time together. How is that possible? But the problem isn't about just the quantity of the time. It's about the quality of the time. Are you actually connecting with one another when you're spending time together? And this is a very frequent complaint of parent, uh, partners or couples in therapy or in general that one or both of them use their phone too much or are distracted uh, by their phone and not paying attention to them and not connecting to them. And we see this happening a lot and it is very unfortunate and we have to be aware of the consequences of this. Quantity time doesn't matter much if there isn't a quality of connection. You can spend hours and hours together, but if you're both uh, zombies focused on your phones, there really is not much connection going on at all. And so we have to be better at putting away the phones and connecting, at least for periods of time. Um, I talked about the book Mindful Tech, and actually was very fortunate to have the author David Levy on the show with me to talk about it uh, via telephone. And that whole book was about how, although our phones and technology has, has been a great way to facilitate connection, or at least the possibility of connection. It also can fac facilitate disconnection. And that's what each one of us has to think about when it comes to how we use our phones and use technology. Am I using it more to connect or disconnect? Because we might think, well, I'm talking to more people, I'm communicating with friends across the world, and that's great. And that's something that would not be possible without the the technology. But at the same time, how much is it making us disconnect from the people around us, from your husband or wife, and importantly, from your kids? How much are you not as aware of them or connecting to them because of your phones? Because we know just the presence of your phone is going to be distracting. They've done research showing that even if your phone is visible or a phone is visible, it makes you less focused on whatever task you're doing because you keep thinking about checking your phone. It really does turn into a type of addiction where you're so preoccupied with checking your phone or seeing what's happening or seeing if you get a notification or a text or a message or an email, whether it's from work or a friend or partner or someone you want to be your partner, that you're not as focused as you could be on whatever it is in front of you. So we have to evaluate our own use of technology. And when we talk about disconnection, of course, I talked about parents and their kids, and I think that's so crucial, and husbands and wives or partners, and how that could be disconnecting. But also, our phones can become a big source of disconnection from ourselves. You know, I think about it when you um, just go anywhere now, people are constantly on their phones when they have a free second. Even I was at a soccer game on Saturday, 
for, unfortunately not in Russia, here in Los Angeles. And I went to the bathroom and you see all the men at the urinals and almost every one of them has their phone and they're looking at their phone while they're going to the bathroom. And I think about, well, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have the phone. So people were kind of left to just look around and, and think and process things. And that was maybe a good thing. But now, as soon as we get a moment where there's nothing going on, and that's even maybe a figure of speech because there's always something you can be doing, but we quickly go to our phones to, to look at what's happening. And because of that, we become more and more disconnected to ourselves because we're not able to think about what's going on for us, what we feel, what we're thinking about. And actually, uh, you know, the book I talked about on Monday, Social by Dr. Matthew Lieberman, one of the things that was brought up is that when our brains aren't asked to do a task, we actually go to our uh, default network of the brain, which is a social processing network, which thinks about things in a social way. So it's interesting that we're actually, I don't know if any research has been done on this yet, but to me it would make sense that because of the fact that we are constantly on our phones when we normally would have downtime and this default network would kick in and allow us to think about social things and process things maybe out of our awareness but still has a positive effect i wonder if we're doing that less and this has some kind of effect on us so not only can our phones disconnect us from the people around us it can disconnect us from ourselves but bringing it back to the article and what i started with this i really think it's very important for parents to think about this because I see it all the time. And they talked about a, a study they did, an observational study at a fast food restaurant looking at uh, kids and parents eating together and how many of the parents were on their phones most of the time. And then you could see the bids of attention that the kids were doing to try to get attention from their parents. And of course, we know that when kids try to get your attention, sometimes they'll do it by doing something bad because they know that's the only way to get you to react. And of course, we don't want them to do that. But also think about the implicit message you keep sending your child, that my email or my text or my Instagram is more important than you. And they see that and they feel that. If you're playing with them and, and it seems like they're having a good time and they think you're having fun, but then something lights up on your phone and all of a sudden you stop playing and look at that, you're sending them a very clear message that what's on my phone right now is more interesting or entertaining than you. So if you're going to play with your kids, and of course I understand you need to check your phone, so I'm not saying never check your phone, that's not feasible, but make sure you set aside blocks of time where you're completely engaged with them, even if it's 20, 30 minutes at a time. We know for kids that time is going to go a little bit slower. So even if you give them a short window of time, but you're very much devoted and engaged with them, that will be very important. So put your phone on silent or put it away or don't even have it around because you know that can distract you and just play with your kid for a little bit each day and make sure you're verbally communicating with them, looking them in the eyes and giving them that 100% undivided attention because that's what they need and that's what's going to really help them develop. Uh, so thank you to my friend Firebud for sending me that article. You can check it out in the Atlantic. It's a really interesting uh, interesting one to check out. Um, and if you'd like to call in, studio number 310-441-0555. We reached our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back.
Mac. Studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk again about a topic that's come up recently uh, when I was doing the success seminar, and that's the issue of hard work. Because I see how pervasive what I like to call the myth of hard work is, and I think it's really worth talking about. Because uh, people have this feeling that working hard is a bad thing or that if you have to do hard work, that's not good, or if you worked a lot, that's worse than not working at all or working less. And we tend to think that we shouldn't be trying to, in that way, push ourselves because it's better to not have to do that. And I do want to make it very clear that I don't think that what's right is to work 100 hours a week and to not have balance in your life. So I'm by no no means trying to say we should be living in that way when I say hard work. But I think because for a lot of history, and even still for most people, the work that they do is not for them, or doesn't really benefit them, they do feel like working hard is not for their benefit and is a bad thing. So in that way, it is understandable. If I'm working just to maybe make someone else make more money, and the work is not fulfilling, and has no real value to me, then what's the point or why would I want to work hard and why wouldn't I want to cut corners? And some people will say that things like the industrial revolution or things becoming more, uh, things like factory work or assembly line work has made people lose touch with the work and for it to have meaning for them. So if you're just supposed to do one thing repetitively a hundred times a day, don't really benefit from how hard you work, don't have a connection to the final product or seeing what impact it has, it's understandable that you're not going to care much for the work. It's not going to be fulfilling or meaningful to you, and you want to get out of it if you can. If you can find a shortcut, you'll find a shortcut. If you can fake it, you'll fake it. If you can, you know, pretend like you're doing it and not do it, you'll do that too. Because the work doesn't have any meaning for you. It doesn't have value. So in that way, I can understand that. And for many people, their jobs still might feel that way. Because it doesn't have value or meaning to them, they're not going to want to work hard. It doesn't feel good to work hard or it doesn't seem like there's anything, any benefit from it. But because of this idea, which probably comes from this type of dynamic, that working hard really has no benefit for you and just benefits someone else, so you should try to get out of it. Also, I think it relates to just how we are as biological organisms where you are supposed to try to exert the least amount of effort to maintain the most efficient way of using your resources. Uh, I'm reminded of the book, The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio, which was uh, the book of the week, I don't know, maybe one or two months ago, um, that we're trying to achieve a homeostasis, not just a balance, but we have to create a surplus. So if you can use less energy and get the resources you need, you should strive towards that and you're trying to figure that out. So there are things that push us towards trying to do less if we can. But then this overall makes this feeling that working hard is not in our favor, that to push ourselves is bad in some way, which couldn't be further from the truth. To actually push ourselves and work hard is something that we are lucky to get to do when it's done in the right direction, when it's put into the right places, the effort and the energy that we're putting into things. But unfortunately, when we're not putting it in the right place, well, we're not going to feel very good about it. So it is important to find your purpose and your meaning in life. 
And I know this is a very cliche type of statement to hear and say, you know, find something you love to do and you'll never have to work a day in your life, follow your dreams, find your passion, all of those things. And they are cliche, but sometimes things are cliche because there's some truth to it. And talking about it is one thing, but actually finding it is a lot harder. It's very easy to say, find what you love or find your passion, but actually looking for it is not so simple and isn't easy. And many people don't even take the time or might not have the time to look for it. But it is important for us to take that time to say, well, what am I living my life for? What is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of what I'm doing? Does it feel meaningful to me? Because if it doesn't, that's a recipe for unhappiness, for living an unfulfilled life. And if you don't want to take the time to look at that, then what do you have time for? If you're not going to actually look at what your life is about or if it's worth something to you, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your life? What can be more important than that? And your meaning could be different things for different people. For some people, it's not always going to be their career because of outside circumstances or things that are going on. It isn't always possible just to stop what you're doing and go follow some dream or passion. I understand that. But you have to find some kind of meaning in the work that you're doing. Or if it's not just your job itself, what you do outside of your work. For some people who are, let's say, parents, it might be that they're providing for their kids. So that gives meaning to their work, even if the job itself is not something that they're so excited about or feel so great about. But giving it that meaning that when I go to work, it's to provide for my children who I love and I care for and I want to give them the best future and opportunities that I can, that could change the way the work feels because now it has a meaning and a purpose. So we have to find that meaning and purpose and passion for ourselves in order to just be okay and be happy, but also to make it so that we can push ourselves or work harder, which in the end will benefit us. And so this is why when I talk about success, I mentioned that to me, success is not about how much you get, uh, if you make money or get fame, but how much you give, that something in your work is giving. That's how we measure we should measure success. So if your work is so that you can provide and give to your kids, then that can be very meaningful and that can be important. Um, but so if we find the meaning in our work, if we find the meaning in whatever it is that we're doing, then we recognize that working hard is a good thing and it's going to feel good for us and that you owe it to yourself to work hard. And I don't mean this just in the case of your job, your nine to five, but in your own life, whether it's taking care of yourself, your physical health, your emotional health, learning, whatever it might be, working hard is to your own benefit. And it's not just about doing it because you're lucky or people that do it are lucky that they do it. You work hard to do it. The reason why I mentioned that part is because sometimes you'll hear about someone who exercises regularly or is in very good shape and you'll hear people say, oh, he or she's so lucky that they do that. And it's not lucky that they're working out every day or five days a week. They're pushing themselves to do it. They've created that in their life. It's not luck. It's work. It's hard work. Or someone who has studied a lot or someone who's developed some area of their life or whatever it is that they might be doing. It's not about luck. It's about hard work. And so we have to get into our brain that working hard is something that we're lucky to do. 
Um, you know, people say this all the time. No one ever goes to the gym and regrets it. You put in that hard work. It can be hard to get there, but once you're there, you're going to feel good. Or for myself, I've never regretted reading a book, even if I didn't enjoy it as much as some other books or get as much out of a book, um, that I would have liked. I'm never regretful that I've read something or that I learned something. And so when I read the books every week, for me, it's something that I get out of it and I feel lucky that I do it, but lucky that I'm pushing myself to work that hard. It only happens by me reading every page of every book and getting to the end. There's nothing lucky about that part, but I feel lucky or feel grateful that I've put in the work. So we have to change this mindset that if I, I can only find people, sometimes are looking for a job where they don't have to work hard. And again, by working hard, I don't mean stressing yourself out and putting in so many hours that you lose balance in your life, but you should actually look for a job where you get to work hard but in a way that feels good to you, that you get to use your skills, that you get to use your abilities, that you feel you see an outcome that means something to you. And if you look back at your life, it's great to go on vacations and enjoy time off. So I'm very much in favor of that with balance. But you usually will look back on some of the best times when you were working hard towards something that meant something to you, when you kept putting in consistent effort and saw an outcome. Those are the things that people feel very good about. Uh, even oftentimes people think about when they went to school, let's say college, and you always think, well, graduation is the best time. And yes, it feels great to graduate as it should and to get your degree, but usually you look back at the time when you were working hard in school and actually see it as something enjoyable or that that was a good time. The striving and the working hard and pushing yourself actually felt good. So... I say this so that everyone listening and a reminder to myself that we should find ways that working hard is going to feel good for us, meaning we should find things where if we put in the hard work, we will feel good and it will feel good for us to keep pushing ourselves and make sure that we do that. Don't take it easy. Don't say, I don't need to work hard. Tell yourself, I want to work harder because I want the best for myself. And this comes not from a place of I have to work hard to be worth something, but actually from a place of because I love myself, I want to make the best of myself. I want to become the best version of myself and meet my full potential. I sometimes hear people, there's a, a kind of a line that people say is like, oh, she's living her best life or he's living his best life or I want to live my best life. And that's a good thing. I think everyone should be living their best life. But usually when I hear people using that term, or that phrase, they mean it more in the sense of taking it easy or doing something fun. And nothing wrong with that, but I think it's important that when you think about living your best life, it's more about working hard than just taking it easy. Uh, a few years ago, people would say, uh, YOLO, you, you only live once, and they'd use that as, as, an, as an excuse to take it easy, to do something fun, to not be responsible. Oh, you know, I have a test tomorrow, but my friends are going to go party, so YOLO, I'm going to go out. And they'd go have fun instead of studying and thinking that that's living their best life. Or now it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing this or I'm taking time off or I'm doing whatever it is and having fun because I'm living my best life. And to me, living your best life definitely enjoys, uh, involves enjoyment and doing the things that are fun for you. But it also involves working really, really hard at the things that mean something to you. At becoming the best at whatever it is that you do because that's going to feel good for you. Taking time off uh, is not something that's going to make you feel good about yourself. 
Again, with balance, yes, you need to do that. So if you're a workaholic and hearing this, I hope you hear the opposite side, that you should, in a way, work hard at being more involved with your family and friends, not just about putting in the time at work, but that we should focus on whatever it is that means living our life to the fullest potential, which means doing everything that we can. So my word of encouragement today is find something that you love and is meaningful to you and make sure that you're working at it as hard as you can to become the best at it that you can. Because first of all, that'll make you feel good. And also you'll do more to contribute more to the people around you in whatever capacity it is that you are developing yourself. It's a win-win. You feel good and the people around you feel good. Because when we give, even though we think that giving means we're giving something of ourselves and we become less, but what actually happens is when we give, we feel our own strength and our own vitality and who we are in a way that feels good. You don't lose something, you actually gain something when you give if it's in a way that you want to give. So think of a goal, think of something you'd like to do and push yourself in that way. Find that meaningful thing for you and work as hard as you can to become the best at it because the myth of hard work, that it's better not to work hard, that it's good to get out of hard work and if you can find a way to get out of doing anything you should do it is a myth. When we do nothing, we don't feel good. When you don't work hard, you're not going to feel good long term. But when you get to push yourself in a way that you feel good about, that's when you're going to achieve the true long lasting happiness that you're searching for. Doing more feels good. The more you do, the more alive you feel. Just like with our physical body, the less you work it, the weaker it becomes. The more you work it, the more powerful and stronger it becomes over time. The same is true of us and how we live our life. So work hard because you deserve it, not for anyone else but yourself. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Doctor. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, I have a question regarding the actual, uh, like, when you give money to the in laws and uh, they will not pay back. And I know they will not pay back. I felt like they, uh, we've done it in the past. And this is like a very sensitive subject between me and my husband. Mm-hmm. And he wakes, first of all, I tell you that he makes 10 times more than me. And uh, and sometimes I feel, I feel like, okay, it's his money that he can do. He can give this money to his family. But, like, he's in a retirement age right now, and uh, he's... It's not he giving a lot of money, but I hate it that every time they need money, they come and ask him. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And he, he would tell me, oh, I couldn't tell them no. But sometimes he says no, but, you know, this time again, they came and uh, they asked him about the money. But I just thought, how do I approach this with him? Because, like, I work, he works, he's 
he's going to be 66 and he's still working. Mm-hmm. I'm working every day, but they are not working. And uh, the guy, actually his brother, will get money for his son because his son is kind of like cannot work right now because he has depression or some other issue but I don't know if he's doing anything about it uh, I just want to let him know I just want to tell him that do you think it's right that we are support we are paying them because we have our own kids and mm-hmm. none of them they are like really I mean we are we are not rich but we are well off you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. It's like we still lot loans on our house, but my, my husband's gonna is gonna be sixty six, gonna be sixty six. So how would I approach that subject with him? So is it first of all, is that okay to do it because he's making way more money than me? Well, I mean, you know, you brought that up a couple times. To me, what's always important is that you should be talking to your um, your partner about the situation. And to, your money is kind of the family's money. Not that it's either one of yours, but that you guys should talk about whatever it is that's going on, no matter what. So I don't think of it as well, because he makes the money, you have no right to say anything. But it's not about one of you being able to just fully make the decision or the other one, that you guys have to talk about it. So I, I would hope that you guys can have a conversation about that. Have you talked to him before about this? Okay. About it so, how how have the conversations gone before? The conversation he always says that because when he was younger, uh, he when they were like they were not that much money, and his brother kind of supports the family, so he feels like uh, now that uh, he can't tell them. Now, although he has given them money. Way more, you know, supported whatever he did. If he want to have a different kind of a, uh, investment, he supported. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And um, he knows how I feel about it because uh, because uh, he, he can see from my face, he can see from my body language. I don't need you to say anything. Well, but that's the but, issue. I, I understand you. You know, and that's what a lot of people do. They say, "Well, he or she knows how I feel," but. Although communication isn't just about words, we want to make sure we make our communication as clear as possible. So that's why I'm saying, have you had a conversation with him, not just does he see your body language or do you think he knows? That's not enough because that means you haven't done enough to make your feelings clear to him or what you think about this. And there's a good chance you and him are going to see this issue differently. One, because it's his parents. Um, and he has his emotions about it, and, and you might have a very different feeling about it. But the whole point is not that you guys have to exactly see this the same way, but that you should communicate so that, one, you understand each other's perspective and feelings much better, and two, that allows you to come to some decision together that you guys feel better about, that you guys can at least both accept. Because right now it seems like it's just happening and you're not happy about it, and it might keep on happening, um, but that's not what we want. And it's not that, okay, well, he knows I'm upset because he's seen my body language, so as a result, he should know and stop doing it. That's not doing enough. So that's why I think you have to make the effort to actually talk to him about this, to actually communicate with him more clearly and directly, because until then you can't say, well, he's doing a wrong thing, because helping out his family isn't necessarily wrong. 
it's kind of a gray area it depends on the amount of money and a bunch of other factors and how you guys both feel about it but until you communicate with him you can't fully say i've done everything to let him know how i feel yeah but you're right i should i i i agree with you i agree with you that uh I do always tell him that I want to talk to you, but he's very sensitive about the subject. It's just like he, but I know that deep down he feels that way. That well, I make so much more money, you know, than you. So, did, so why is he saying something? I know deep down he thinks that way, doctor. Well, I I don't know if he does or he doesn't, and I know you're saying you know, but you don't really know because you haven't talked to him about it. So that's my point is it seems like from both sides and, and most couples have this, most relationships, we make a lot of assumptions and we think we know what the other person feels or we think the other person knows what we feel, but we don't clearly talk about it. And so you think that's why, and maybe that's why you're afraid to have this conversation. And so that was going to be something else I was going to ask you was what do you think makes you avoid this conversation? This is one of those difficult or uncomfortable conversations that many people avoid most of the time. But you have to ask yourself, why am I afraid or anxious about bringing this up? So what do you think makes you anxious about talking to him about this topic? We've done it in the past. I mean, never agreed. It what? We, we, talk, we talk about this kind of situation in the past and we never agreed so it's just a repetition okay? you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying it's yeah. like we never get you're absolutely right we will never agree it with this uh, we never see the same thing the mm-hmm. same view with this situation because I was always I, I always believe that everybody has to take care of themselves but oh let me tell you something else but he is he's the one that uh Usually give money to everybody else. I feel like he likes, he likes the feeling of being, being a hero, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, he has done it in the past, not necessarily the family, just other people too, that we never got a lot of money back. But now that we are in our uh, almost close to retirement age, it just I just want to tell him I'm, I'm worried, but he always said, oh no, don't worry about it. But I don't trust that. Well, you know, and you know, you said we've had these conversations in the past, but it seems like, first of all, a lot, maybe a lot has changed since then, but none of those conversations were complete enough. There's a lot more to talk about. So, uh, you know, and you, you're right, you might not ever see this eye, see eye to eye, but you can see things a little bit better, at least try to see it through his eyes and he sees it through your eyes, because it seems like there's a lot you're upset about, and it might not just be about his parents, maybe other people he has given money to. But other than the fact that you're saying, well, we had this talk before, what do you think keeps you from having this conversation with him? What do you think you worry about? What do you worry he's going to say? Or what do you worry about how you're going to look if you bring this up? Oh, he th- okay. I, th- I think deep down, I would think that, oh, she always about she always worry about the money. And, and, then, and then it's just like, she doesn't even lower yourself when you talk about this thing. You know, he has said those things in the past. But I'm not, uh, it's just, I, and the other thing is just like, I don't even like, I don't like the conflict, doctor. That's another yeah. thing, too. Okay, so you're, avo- yeah, and that's a, a big one. You're avoiding the conflict, which is what a lot of people do. 
So when you, you know, I would recommend the book for you, Difficult Conversations is the title of the book, which is very straightforward title and it's a very straightforward book, but it gets into the reasons why uh, we, either these conversations go poorly or we avoid them. And so you're afraid of how you're going to look, like, am I going to look like someone who only cares about money and maybe I'm a, you know, in that way shallow that he cares about people, but I care about money only or... And then also you're afraid of conflict, which many people are. They're afraid to have a conflict, afraid to have a conversation that might not go well. And so they'd rather avoid it. And so you'd rather just in passive ways, you know, make a look or show some body language to hopefully have him figure out what you feel. And then you're hoping that he'll do what you want. But you have to recognize the part where you haven't done enough to make the communication clear to, to help things along. And it could be for these reasons. That's why you have to keep looking at, okay, what's keeping me from this conversation? Because there almost always is. And in the book, they talk about how there's lots of reasons. And one of the big ones is our identity gets into play usually in these kind of conversations. And so for you, maybe this thing of, am I someone who cares too much about money? Or will I come off that way? Am I a kind person? Am I a difficult wife? Am I being mean to my in-laws? Whatever it might be for you, there's reasons that are making you afraid or not wanting to have this conversation and so you have to look at that and every time i brought up what's kept you or what do you think is going to happen you haven't given a full answer you say well we've had the conversation before and you're probably right but most big topics don't get handled on one or two conversations and the ones you guys had seems like they weren't very complete they weren't there wasn't enough there and so if i were you if you do want to bring it up I wouldn't start with anger or I can't believe you still do this or I've made it clear to you I don't like this and you keep doing it. You can say, you know, this is an issue that we haven't talked about that I think is important for us to talk about. And so that's why I, I want to bring it up so we can have a conversation about it. And I think it's important for us both to know what each other feels and what's going on and get to a better place with it together. You know, so that's that would be my recommendation is because you're, you know, you're almost calling me saying, isn't what he's doing wrong? And I can't really tell you if he's what he's doing is right or wrong or he's, you know, being a bad husband or a bad person. And I would never say that. But what I can tell you is that you and him have to come to a better place together. And that's the only thing that's going to matter because what you guys decide, other people might not be okay with. Someone else might think it's wrong. So I could think it's the wrong thing to do. But you and him have to come to a place where you feel okay. And John Gottman, who has done extensive research on marriages and couples and he's seen that there are sometimes you have to resolve the resolvable conflicts but sometimes you're going to have some unresolvable conflicts so you might talk about this and never see it eye to eye but what he finds is the couples that get away from what he calls gridlock is that they can at least understand each other's perspective and have respect for their perspective and at some level be okay with how the thing has been resolved even if it's not fully resolved what they decide to do, they can accept. And right now you're not at that place because you are just angry about this and it's something that keeps coming up and probably is on your mind a lot of the time. And that's going to have build up resentment for you and other negative things in the relationship that we obviously don't want. So it, to me, the best way for you guys to improve on this is to have some more conversations about it. You need to talk. Mm -hmm. That's true. The thing is that uh, I think the reason that I am just resisting talk with him is just because uh, I deep down 
I know we can never agree about this situation. And the other thing is that uh, I'm thinking that, okay, well, he's going to hide from me and then send the money to give them the money without even just bringing it up to me. And that's the thing I want to tell him that, you know, what, like, for example, he sent money, he gave money to his sister, and uh, I didn't know it. I found it from someone else. And I just never, never brought it up. So well, but, just, but that's, see, again, that's another thing. He didn't bring it up, but you can bring it up. And I wouldn't bring it up. That's why I said I wouldn't attack him if I were you. Because, yeah, if you attack him, then he'll just do it, but he'll hide it from you. You, you might be right about that. But if you make it a conversation and say, I want us to be able to talk about this, I want us to be able to be open about this. And yes, we might see it in a different way, but I have hope that if we talk about it, we can see each other's perspective well enough to then find some kind of way of resolving this or getting to a better place. That that would be the goal. So I think because you're so angry at him, you feel that if you have this conversation with him, it's going to be hard for you not to attack him or get angry at him. And so... Because of that, you might feel that I want to avoid this conversation because you feel too hot about it. So that's something else that is important in the book that I was talking about mentions the difficult conversations that before you have this conversation, you want to be coming from a cool place. And by that, I mean, is your feelings can't be too hot in the moment because then you won't be able to communicate effectively. You're more likely going to attack him. It's going to turn into a battle and a war rather than a conversation that gets somewhere. So you have to come to a place like, okay, I don't feel, I have a lot of anger about this, but that's why I'm going to talk to him about it. Let's have this conversation and let's see how it goes. And then talk to him coming from a more cool place. And that's the only way it can go well. But if you start yelling at him about why I can't believe you've done this and you've hid this from me and you did that, it's not going to be a conversation that gets anywhere. So I think you have a lot of concerns about how it's going to go. I think you have concerns that, well, he makes more of the money. Do I even have a right to say anything about the money and how it's used? And to me, when you're, you know, partners together, the financial decisions should come together. It's not just because I make more money, I can say what I want. I think it does make sense for both people to at least have a conversation about things. Um, and that, that to me is important. To me, again, like most people, it's an issue of lack of communication or under-communication. But we have to also look at why you are afraid to have the communication in the first place. And, you know, you come up with excuses. Well, we've already talked about it. Well, we've, you know, it's not, we're not going to get anywhere. And you might be right, but I'd hope you give it a try because not talking about it is not going to work. That's not going to be the solution. Well, what if he says, well, I can't, I, I, I'm going to do this. You know, I just I can't tell them. Well, That's well, what he said. He, he told he told his sister, well, well, I can't I can't tell you no," and he writes a check. That's like that. You know what I'm saying? And, and he and you're not like really rich, doctor. That's really upsetting me the most. Yeah, well, but that's what you need to talk to them about. And you know, again, it's not that you're saying because I said it, you can't do it. Uh, that's not at all what we're talking about. So it's not about that either, but it's about that we have to be able to talk about this and have a conversation. And I'm not trying to control what you do, but I want us to talk to get to a place that's better than where we are right now, because it, it doesn't work. This is not going to be good. If he says, well, I don't care what you think I'm going to do it anyway. That's not going to work. It, it's not going to be a solution. And clearly you're not feeling good about it, which is understandable. You obviously don't like him. You know, if he says I'm going to do it, whether you like it or not, that's not going to work. So it, it's really about having the conversation it's better than this the alternative is that you just hold it in inside and hope he does what you want and like i said my goal isn't that you talk to him so he stops doing it 
that shouldn't be the goal of your conversation. The goal should be, we need to talk about this so that we get to a better place as partners together in our relationship. The final decision, maybe he's going to give just as much money as he's giving. But if you guys talk about it and you feel understood by him, things will be a lot easier for you to accept. But if you feel like he doesn't care what you feel, that to me is more important than the money that's involved. That's going to be more significant. So that's why I want you to talk to him. It's not because I want you to talk to him so you guys stop sending the money. I don't know what's going to be the right solution for you guys. But I think what's not going to be right is for you to just keep holding on to this resentment towards him and to just think that the solution might be that he'll stop on his own. Even if he did stop, you'd still have resentment from the past times he's given it. It's still going to be there. So I would really hope you talk to him about this and just, yeah, it might not be comfortable. It's probably not going to be a one conversation type of a thing. So don't think you have to get it completely resolved in one talk. Maybe in the first talk, feelings do come up for both of you. And that's okay. That's just part one. It's not a, a one time and has to be solved type of a thing. Most issues like this won't be resolved in one talk. Even people sometimes think that is, and then they go back and they realize, oh, I still have these other feelings or things that didn't come up. So they might have to talk again. So have that perspective on it, that this is just opening up a conversation that is going to have to be had. And we're going to have to talk about more and more, but that it's not going to be the overall solution itself. He's, he's worse about talking, communicating. He's worse than me. He, he hates this conversation, okay. too. Just like, he likes everything to be nice and nice and clean and everything at the surface. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, and I understand it does. T it takes two to tango. It takes two to have these kind of conversations. Most people don't like them. So it, it's understandable that you might not want to have it. And he might be even more not wanting to have it. I, I get that. I would just hope that you give it a try because there's it's really no way you're going to resolve it on your own. Unless you can just accept it yourself and be like, you know what? I, I can accept that he's doing this, but I'm not going to bring it up anymore. But I don't know if you can. So I, I would make sure to make it easier for him have the conversation not start in a attacking type of a way make it that you just want to talk because you think you know what it's good for us to understand each other better not because what you're doing is bad or wrong or you know i deserve this or whatever it might be it's that i really want us to understand each other better and i don't want us to have to not talk about it or if you feel like you have to hide it, it you know also think about his perspective he wants to help his family he feels a responsibility now whether he should or he shouldn't that's up for discussion, but that's a discussion hopefully you guys can have together. But you have to also put yourself in his shoes. And that's going to be part of the discussion process is him being in your shoes, you being in his shoes, understanding each other's thoughts and feelings, and then coming to some resolution that works for both of you. Even if it's things being exactly the same, but you feeling like, okay, at least I feel heard and understood now. Yeah. Perfect. So when can I listen to this conversation again? Um, this one, I'll probably upload it tonight. So probably by tonight, it'll be on my uh, SoundCloud and uh, podcast on iTunes. So, it's, it's in, so I go to SoundCloud, Dr. Holakwi. If you go to SoundCloud.com, yeah, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, or on um, iTunes, if you go to the podcast section and you search In Session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi or Dr. Fadid Holakwi, it'll come up and then you can find it there. So much My pleasure. Great sure. talking to you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. All right, going to our next studio break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back.
back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Before the break, I was talking with a caller and she was talking about trying to have conversation with her husband about an issue that was uncomfortable one, a difficult conversation to have or they'd had. And I wanted to continue on that topic because I know in almost any relationship, but especially in any marriage, there's almost always these difficult conversations that are being avoided or uh, these conversations that are had over and over again, but feel like you don't get anywhere. So sometimes people can feel like, well, what's the point? If we have another conversation, it's just going to be another fight and we're just going to get more angry or more resentful. I'm going to feel like I'm wasting my breath or my energy or my emotions. So why not just not talk about it? I've accepted to not talk about it. And this is an understandable conclusion or place to get to after having uh, these types of conversations. And as I mentioned to her, what is likely that you're dealing with is a uh, unsolvable conversation or issue. It might be one of those issues or unresolvable, one that you and your partner might not ever see exactly the same way. And as much as we'd like to think that every couple should work out every issue every time, we see that this is not the case. And extensive research by John Gottman has shown exactly that, that you don't always resolve every issue. Sometimes uh, some issues just can't be fully resolved. And that can be okay. You can still be happily married and not resolve every issue. But what can be hurtful to the marriage is if when they have these types of unresolvable conflicts, things that they just can't seem to see eye to eye on, that both partners feel understood and they avoid getting to what many partners end up with, is, which is gridlock, where they feel really stuck and just get more and more resentful and angry. So when you have the motivation to have this conversation or these conversations. And as I mentioned, that book, Difficult Conversations, is a great one to help you with all difficult conversations, whether it's in the workplace, with your kids, or with your partner. Um, I'd highly recommend that book. But you really have to prepare yourself for the conversation first. And a lot of times when people think about having these conversations, they think, I want to talk to my partner about this because I want to make this change. I want to make things become like this or for this to stop, which is an understandable place to come from. But that can lead to things becoming just more combative rather than having a good conversation. You have an agenda. So you're not really listening to your partner. You are trying to get a result. And that's not the right place to come from to really have a conversation. It's the same thing parents have with their kids. A lot of times they'll ask me for advice and they say, yeah, I want to listen to my child about this or that. But then when you really ask them, it's not that they want to listen to their child. They just want to make their kid do X, Y, or Z. So they're not asking for my advice of how to have a better conversation. They're saying, how can I control my kid? Basically, how can I get my kid to do exactly what I want him or her to do with the issue that I'm thinking about? And that's not actual listening. Genuine listening means that maybe what you want or what you think is right might not be the solution that you end up with, with whoever it is that you're talking about. So first we have to come to that place that, okay, if I want to genuinely have a conversation with whoever it is, let's say in this case, my husband or my wife, I have to be willing to have a conversation, meaning I'm willing to listen to them and be open to even changing my perspective or not coming to the conclusion I think right now is the right one. I'm going to be open to hearing him or her out. But most of the time we're not doing that. We say, I want to have this talk to make this happen. And that of course is not going to lead to a good place because then we're trying to win against our partner rather than win with our partner. 
and really come to a place together. So we have to accept that more than likely, even after having the conversation, we're not going to maybe see eye to eye, but we want to at least be able to feel like we can see things from each other's eyes or feel like my partner sees and understands where I'm coming from, because that's really, really important. And a lot of times in these issues, that's really all that can happen. You might not, you might not change your mind. You maybe will, and hopefully you're open to that, but more than likely you stay in the same position, but you think, you know what, now I understand why this is so important to my partner. I understand why this means so much to him or her. And as John Gottman has studied this more, he's found that in these unresolvable conflicts, what tends to be underneath them is something much more meaningful than whatever it is on the surface. So if it's about giving money, as it was in the last caller, it's not just about the specific money involved, but it could be bigger things about what it means to be a good son or daughter, or what it means to be a good person. Or they saw something in their parents, let's say, some type of suffering that was so painful that they felt like for the rest of their life they had to pay them back. But whatever exactly it is, it's going to be different, obviously, for person person and in each situation, but we want to understand that. And so rather than just focusing on whatever the issue is, let's say it's money or time or giving this or not giving this or whatever else it might be, we want to take a look at what's underneath that for each person. So each individual has to look at what does this issue really mean to them deep down? What is it that's being triggered for them on a deeper level, some kind of dream or desire or wish or some feeling about themselves and who they want to be or who they're afraid to be? And that's something that we need to look at and that both people share that with one another. Because then if you understand the reason why my wife wants to do this is because her father did X, Y, and Z, and she can't stand seeing him feel this way, then there's a very different feeling that you're likely going to have. It's not just, oh, my partner doesn't care about me and wants to use the money selfishly. It's not going to feel that way anymore when you realize, wow, this is coming from a really deep place for my partner. And so the conversation is more about understanding than just finding a solution. Understanding first, and then whatever solutions or whatever else it might be, that comes second. Sometimes not even at all, because you might not find a new solution. So first, you want to make sure you understand each other. And so if you bring up a topic with your partner, make sure you bring it up in this way. That it's not that, hey, I want to talk to you about this again because it has to change. Or, hey, I want to talk about this because I want to change your mind. But it's more like, I want to talk about this so that we understand each other's perspectives better. And, you know, every time we talk about this, it becomes a heated argument. And that tells me that we both have some big issues or big things that come up when we talk about this. Something's going on that makes it so meaningful to both of us. And because of that, I want us to talk about it and to really understand each other more. So the goal should be understanding rather than just trying to convince them that you're right and to see things your way. And we know that most of us are conflict avoidant. We are afraid of conflict. We'd rather avoid conflict almost in any way that we can. We think it's better not to have a conflict. If you know we're peaceful and things are good and we're hanging out, we think, well, why would I ruin it by bringing up this topic? And sometimes our partner will make us feel that way. Um, you know, I, I kind of joke sometimes and I say, people will say, oh, I was in such a bad mood. I can't believe you brought it up now and you already know I've had a hard day or it'll be the other way. Oh, I'm having such a good day. Why did you ruin it by bringing this conversation? There really is no perfect time to have an uncomfortable conversation because they're almost, they're always going to make us feel a little bit worse than we were. 
they're uncomfortable and they're difficult because they don't feel good to have. So by definition, it's not going to feel good to have that conversation. Um, that being said, timing does matter. Of course, you want to make sure they have time. They're not distracted. They're not busy with something else. It's not, let's say, too late at night. It's not a time when they don't have good mental energy and focus. We want to make sure we choose a good time still, but recognize that no time is going to feel really good or really uh, never bad at all. So we have to be ready for that aspect of it too. But we want to make sure we have these conversations. A good and healthy marriage is going to be predicated on having uncomfortable conversations. We have to be willing to face conflict. We have to be willing to face discomfort and to have the conversations that don't feel good in the moment, but are necessary to keep the relationship healthy and strong. So even if you've had a conversation 1,000 times, it doesn't mean you have to stop having it. But what it probably means is you've had it 1,000 times the same way. And so having it the 1,001st time exactly the same way is not going to end with a different result. You keep doing the same thing, you're not going to get a different result. But you want to have the conversation, but have it in a different way. And approach it in a different way. Talk to your partner about how you can have it in a different way. And even let them know, you know what, we've talked about this 100 times. And we, we don't get anywhere, but I think it's because we're not having the conversation the right way. Let's see if we can do it differently this time, because I think it's not something that we can avoid, but it's something that we need to face and let's face it together. And when you have a conflict, it's not that you and the partner are fighting against each other. It's that you see things differently. It's not something bad. Conflict is inevitable in any relationship. It's not about if you have conflict, it's about how you approach the conflict, how you have those conversations that really matters. So I hope people won't avoid those conversations. And I know you've probably had it so many times that you feel like, what's the point of having it again? But think about how you can have it differently and see if you can come to a place of understanding with your partner to then be able to move on from it, even if you don't see completely eye to eye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. In the previous segment, I was talking about conflicts or difficult situations that you have in a relationship that people often avoid talking about. And this brings up another related issue, which is the ways that we communicate or communication styles. And many people uh, have probably heard about the different categories. But I did want to talk about them a little bit today and add some you know, pieces of whether it's advice or just things to recognize about them uh, related to communication styles. So there's sometimes a way of dividing the styles into three types. One is passive, one is assertive, and one is aggressive. So on the passive side, you have a big part of it is avoiding conflict. So you avoid conflict, and because of that, you're very agreeable to everyone else. You say 
um, okay when they say something. You don't contradict what they have to say. You don't share your opinion if it is different from theirs. And you're very much just an, what you might say is a very agreeable person. Not because you genuinely agree, but because you are avoiding conflict. So you're saying yes to whatever it is to make everyone around you okay because you're so afraid of conflict and we can get into why someone might be this way but that's being passive so in a way what when we can look at passive is what i want is not very important what you think or others think or want is important or no, another way of looking at that is what i want is to avoid conflict and i'm going to put everything else above that so i'll put away my own feelings my own thoughts whatever it is my opinions my own needs to avoid conflict that becomes paramount on the other extreme of passive we have aggressive and what's important to note is that sometimes when people do something and they recognize it as unhealthy they think that the solution is to go to the other extreme so if passive is bad it's better to be aggressive and just to to get what you want and so someone who's aggressive they're on the other extreme what you want doesn't matter only what i want matters i want it this way this is what i think this is what i uh, don't think or don't agree with this is what i think should be done and because of that um, i want it to always go my way and i don't mind if i'm going to step on someone's toes i don't care if i even have to make you feel threatened but i'm going to get my way so the aggressive mindset is the other extreme what i want matters what you want doesn't matter and that's on the other extreme but the healthy version or the healthier version is to be what we call assertive and assertive means that i will state my feelings and my opinions and what i want and what i um, don't want my needs my views but i won't step on your toes but i also won't hold myself back so it's a balanced view where if we go to the way i was talking about it before what you think matters and what i think matters and they both are going to be important i'm not going to keep either of them away so i'm going to listen to what you have to say and in a respectful way present my ideas but i'm not going to hold back and that's what we want to uh, strive towards and now although we talk about them in these definitive ca categories it's not always exactly clear what type of communication is being done but usually you can tell and also no one is purely operating from any of these places so no one is purely passive purely aggressive or purely assertive and also in different relationships different aspects of you might come out you maybe have experienced this for example maybe at work you become very passive because let's say you're scared or you don't uh, feel comfortable about your job security or whatever it might be or just that's how you are in public but then all of a sudden at home you can be even aggressive at times and angry right so then we see a different side of you so no one's going to be just one way all the time we're going to have different aspects of ourselves coming out but if we want to think about what we want to strive towards being assertive is going to be what we want to be most of the time if we can do that that's the healthiest way that we can communicate so being assertive uh if you get to that place it can be very liberating because when you're assertive it means i'm gonna say what i think and what i feel and i'm not going to be holding back just to make other people happy and i'm also not going to say it in a way that hurts them i'm going to say what i think now people who are passive even sometimes in therapy you'll work with them on becoming more assertive because we realize that the passive uh, communication style doesn't make people happy they don't feel fulfilled because what they want and think doesn't get expressed they feel kind of like they're in chains like they're held back 
even though they're putting themselves in those chains, it's themselves that is not letting them communicate. Um, but they feel very bad. And also, even though they are avoiding conflict and everyone thinks, oh, they're so nice and easygoing, they're actually building up resentment because they're not actually easygoing. It's just that things that they actually feel or think they're not expressing. They're not sharing what's on their mind. So yeah, they're not getting into conflicts with anyone because they don't know what's actually going on. And so these people tend to build resentment. And that's when actually someone who's very passive in one moment can become very aggressive after holding things in for so long and saying, oh, this is the hundredth time that it's happened. But they didn't say anything the first 99 times and now they're angry. So they put themselves in these chains, but then they feel the resentment over time of holding back. And so they're avoiding conflict, which to them is paramount, but they don't feel very good about it long term. And so when someone who is passive and who is very conflict avoided and afraid of conflict, what ends up happening is when you encourage them to become assertive, what they start to experience and we say it's good for you, it's going to be healthier and it's going to feel good and it is all of those things, but then they start to have more conflicts. And this actually is something that's very hard for them to deal with. And they don't feel good about that at all. And they might even become angry and say, well, you told me to act more in this way, or I'm trying to, you know, that this is going to be better for me, but now I'm having all these fights or all these conflicts. How is that good? But the reason for this is, yes, if you're going to express how you feel more, there's going to be conflicts sometime. So let's just take a simple example, picking somewhere to eat. If everyone is trying to pick somewhere to eat, if you are two people and one of them is passive, you're never going to have a conflict because one of them could just say, I want to do this. And the person who's passive will always say, okay. And every time it comes up next time, where should we eat? I want to go here. Okay. And every time, no conflict, right? You're never going to have a conflict if someone is going to be purely passive. But let's say the passive individual says, you know what? Now I'm going to express what I want. So the person says, I want to go here and says, you know what? I don't really want to eat that today. And now they might have a conflict, but it's not something bad. It's just that the result of any two people or the bigger your group gets is that you're going to have differing opinions, differing wants and needs, and this has to get resolved. And when it gets resolved, it means that differences have to somehow be reconciled. People aren't always going to get their way, but that's just the way it goes in any kind of relationship. So we have to be ready that if we're going to have genuine relationships, if you're going to be actually open with people and want to be genuine and that's the only way you can have intimacy the only way you can really be emotionally intimate with someone is if you're willing to be open with them so you have to be willing to face conflict you have to accept that in order to have a close relationship with someone i have to accept conflict in this relationship and actually uh, there was a quote i forgot who said it but that when you pick a person, you essentially are picking a set of problems, meaning that no matter who you marry or who you decide to be with, you're going to have some issues with that person. So there's going to be some ways that you and them will be, let's say, a mismatch or will have conflicts. So let's say one of you is very punctual and the other one is very late. And now you guys always fight about that. And you're gosh, I hate this about that person. But let's say if you married the person that was also very punctual, there was something else about them that you would fight about. And that would be your issue. So no matter what, you're going to have some issues that are themes that come up. And on top of that, you're going to have issues here and there that are going to come up no matter what. That's just part of being in a relationship. So you have to accept this. And before that, just accept that conflict is not something that's purely bad. 
that it is a part of a relationship. For most people, they didn't see conflict resolved in a healthy way. Most people lived in homes where conflicts were avoided or they became big explosions. That's what you tend to see. You see this especially a lot in uh, Persian families. People hold in their anger. They don't share how they feel. They don't express their feelings. They don't express conflict. They say they're okay with things, but they hold it and hold it and then they blow up. So what people tend to see and learn about conflict is that it is this ugly thing. It is this thing that has to be avoided at all costs, no matter what. Who wants to fight like that? Who wants to have those kind of conversations? And especially when you have seen conflict in that way, conflict feels to be a threat of love, a threat of a relationship. If we fight like that, that might be the end of our relationship together. That might be the end of our, our marriage or the end of us being close or the end of you loving me. So we feel like we have to avoid it at all costs. What would be really good is if in families we had healthy communication and healthy resolution of conflicts. Okay, mom and dad disagree about this. Let's talk about it and they find a way to come to a resolution. Or the kids disagree and that's okay. Let's talk about it. Not that conflict itself is bad, but how we deal with it can be good or bad because you're going to have conflict and differing opinions. So you have to accept this, that if I want to truly love my partner, if I want to have a truly relationship with him or her, it's going to have to involve conflict at some level. We're going to have to have some disagreements sometimes, and that's okay. Because the good news is, first of all, you need it to get close, but also relationship research has found that resolving these conflicts can actually lead to strengthening the relationship. It's kind of like how a muscle grows. There are these microscopic tears that happen, but those tears don't lead to it be the muscle becoming weaker. They actually, through the repair process, make the muscle stronger. Similarly, in a relationship, you have these tears that come up, these small tears that come up because of the conflict, because of the arguments that you might have. But if you resolve them in healthy ways, they're actually going to result in you being stronger in your relationship, having a stronger partnership together. It's not going to make you weaker. But if when you have these fights, it gets ugly and disrespectful and there's aggression or even violence involved, then those tears aren't microscopic. They become bigger tears. And now the relationship does become damaged and weaker. So it's not about if you fight, it's about how you fight that matters. That's the important part. And if you've never fought, that's a problem too. Sometimes I've worked with couples and they say, we've never fought before in the two years we've been together. And I always tell them, I'm sorry to hear that. And kind of, I say it that way as a joke, but I really mean it because if you've literally never had a conflict before, something is going on. Either you're not that close because you just never really rub each other the wrong way enough to get upset, or one or both of you is holding back your feelings, holding back the way that you feel, or holding back things that you are upset about. So we have to be careful not to take lack of conflict as a sign of strength. Of course, this doesn't mean that if you're fighting all the time, that's good. That's also a sign of a problem in the relationship. But we have to be ready that you're going to have some conflicts, and that's okay. Now, another piece of sometimes marriage advice that people have is that, you know, you got to pick your battles and you'll hear people say that. So don't fight about things or don't bring things up. And it sounds like good advice, 
that, yeah, you shouldn't just, you know, have all these fights all the time. So we might think that the healthier couples do that. They hold things in and sometimes they don't bring it up if they're upset about something. But the research actually finds almost the opposite. They found that healthy couples, their threshold for bringing something up is actually lower. So it's not that they hold things in and they don't have the fights. It's that they actually are willing to bring up things more easily. So they'll say, you know what, this is bothering me. I didn't like this. I'm going to bring it up. They don't hold things in because when we hold things in, that leads to uglier fights down the line and bringing, building up resentment that doesn't lead to healthier relationships. What we want to do is have the arguments, have the discussions when they come up and not let them build up rather than thinking it's better off if we just never have it at all. So have those conversations, even if they are difficult, know that the fact that they don't feel good to have doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. It just means that they're uncomfortable conversations that we have to have in order to build a healthy and happy relationship. And we want to be more assertive in how we communicate with our partners and know that we want to be direct with them. The only way you can be close is by letting someone actually know how you feel, even if it's something that you think they might not like in that moment. Letting them feel what you're feeling and know what you're feeling. That's much more likely to lead to a healthy and happy relationship than holding things in. Don't make your goal avoiding conflict. Make your goal be closeness and intimacy. That should be what you're striving towards. It's not how you fight or it's not if you fight, it's how you fight. And make sure you have the conversations that you need to have. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. In this last segment, I wanted to talk about or con and continue the topic of communication. And I was talking about having the difficult conversations that I really hope people will have. Uh, anytime I work with a couple or really in any relationship, you just see that there's so many uncomfortable conversations that haven't been had that need to be had. And so we want to have those. But now I want to talk about when we think of conversations, we think a lot about talking. And of course, that is a big part of it. But what might even be the bigger half or even more important than the talking is the listening. And that's something that most people don't do very well that we can improve on. So when we get ready to have a conversation, most pe people think about what am I going to say? What are my points? What are my arguments? What are the things I want to make sure I tell the person? And that's important. You want to have that preparation involved. But what's very important is to recognize that you have to make sure the other half of the conversation is there and done well. And that's the listening. And listening means I'm actually going to hear what you have to say, not just in the words, as I was talking about before in talking about parents and their kids, but also try to see what you're feeling, pay even more attention to that. And when we create conversations that aren't me against you, this facilitates op the open listening or the, the listening to happen. But 
when we have me against you conversations, listening takes a back seat. Because what happens is, rather than listening to what you have to say, my focus is less on understanding you and more about arguing with you. My focus is less about hearing what you have to say and more thinking about what I have to say to what you have to say. So we're, we're presenting or we're developing our rebuttal while we're listening. Okay, oh, she's making that point. Oh, yeah, but I don't know. I know what I'm going to say. As soon as she stops, I'm going to say this. And we don't even hear the person or really have the patience to try to hear them out because we're so focused on what we want to say, what we have to say. And so when we go into a conversation, that's a difficult conversation, as I mentioned before, we have to make sure that our motivation is in the right place. If our motivation is, I want he or she to think as I do, to see it the way I see it, well, then that's not going to be a conversation that will likely go very well. So if you're a parent and you tell me, I want to get better at talking to my kids, and I say, you have to listen more, you have to recognize that when I say listen more, it doesn't just mean hear the words out of their mouth, look at them and nod, which is what a lot of parents might do to think they're listening better. It means actually hear their words and take them in and be like, oh, this is what she feels or this is what he thinks. Not just, okay, they said their part, I made it seem like I listened, but my word is the final word no matter what. That's not genuine listening. So no matter who you're talking with, we have to make sure that our focus isn't just on the talking, but it's also on the listening. And so that means I have to be willing to hear everything you have to say and ask you, is there anything else? Is there more? And there are some techniques that we have for listening. There's active listening and there's different ways that you can become a better listener and they can work and sometimes they can be hard to do when we're really stressed out, but we want to do them. But a big part of them is that we show our partner that what you have to say is very important to me, that I'm not just focused on getting what I have to say out. So the motivation going in is for understanding not to convince anyone of anything, not to make sure they see it the way I see it, but to understand each other better for you to get understood too. So it's not just about them. So I'm not saying shift the focus completely to them, but make sure you have that balanced approach that I'm not trying to make sure 